Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, September 16, 2018. The share ID numbers for Friday, September 14th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11,914. That's 11914. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11,916. 11916. This morning, A Vision for You presents When I Ceased Fighting. All of us have come to this program as a result of the suffering, frustration, and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. Beaten into a state of reasonableness, we come to the realization that we are doomed, cornered, no choice. The purpose of the big book is to change your life through a 12-step process of personal transformation leading to a spiritual awakening. If you're suffering from compulsive overeating, the big book provides clear directions as to how you can experience such an awakening. Those of us who have walked this path can assure you of its effectiveness. Indeed, there is hope. We once suffered in hopelessness and despair. Now we are new people with a new purpose. We have been transformed. The problem has been removed. We are no longer fighting. We have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. Indeed, we have been freed from bondage. Joining us today is Barb P., a recovered compulsive overeater from Kansas. After years of painful compulsion and obsession, Barb is now free as a result of the 12 steps, and she's here to share her profound experience with all of us on the line. Good morning, and welcome to you, Barb. Good morning. I am Barb, and I am a compulsive overeater. Leah, can you hear me? I hear you well. Go right Okay, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for the opportunity to share my experience, strength, and hope with you today. And especially thank you, Leah, for your service. I am a low-bottom compulsive overeater. Hitting bottom, abstaining, and working the 12 steps have placed me in a position of neutrality like the big book talks about. As Leah said, after years of practicing my food addictions, I am now free of the painful and unrelenting compulsion and obsession with food in my body that seemed to dominate my every living moment. But I didn't remove them myself. This required a power far greater than mine that I was only able to access through abstaining and working the steps. I have now been sober and abstinent. I am an alcoholic. Since 1982, and continue to work and grow in the program. I chose the passage in the big book that Leah referenced for today because it promises release from food obsession and compulsion. This has happened for me only as a result of working the steps, which I did out of desperation that made me willing to do whatever it took. And in spite of challenging conditions that should have made recovery an unlikely possibility for me, So allow me to read the entire passage from pages 84 and 85 of the big book. 
And we, uh, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, we, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. This is also my experience. As I read this passage, I can remember wanting this kind of freedom with all my heart long before I ever heard of OA or the 12 Steps. It seemed impossible despite my best efforts, but it was impossible on my own. I chose this incredibly promising passage because my disease was dominated by fighting, not just in life, but that compulsion and obsession with food in my body. I fought it with all my might and it would not budge. This freedom did not come to me immediately. I struggled in OA for two years, trying to abstain and then binging again because my abstinence was really just white knuckle. I remember thinking during one of my many difficult attempts to abstain that if this is what abstinence is, I'm not sure I want it. Um, I was really questioning this thing, you know. I was trying to control the food, the compulsion, and the obsession myself. And the more I tried to control it, the stronger it got. And you'll see that as a theme in my story. The more I try to control something I'm powerless over, the stronger it gets. I had to be hypervigilant in my early attempts at abstinence. If a mood or event threw me off and something always did, I couldn't take it. I finally became as desperate as a drowning person reaching for a life preserver, and I hit bottom hard. Facing my alcoholism also proved necessary for me to achieve the honesty essential to get abstinence. I had to become completely desperate. You'll see desperation throughout my story, and I'm grateful for that desperation. It is a gift. It's the only way I would be willing to do what the steps require, which starts with giving up using the food when everything in me wanted it. It sounds pretty basic, and it is. This is a simple program, and not putting the food in my mouth when I want it is simple, but it is not easy. I'm going to share with you what brought me to my knees and how my bottom enabled me to be willing to do the work necessary so the compulsion and obsession would be removed. I want to emphasize at this point that this is my experience. It's not my opinion. It's not advice. This is what has happened to me and for me as a result of working the steps. So take what you like and leave the rest, as we say. Both of my parents were alcoholic. My father was abusive and my mother was ashamed. Working the program as an adult, I learned how my reactions to my family situation led me to use food in my body obsession to cope with such a painful home life. At one time, it brought me seemingly soothing relief and a sense of security, if for only moments, when I seemed to need it the most. It likely kept me from completely losing my mind. And it also tempered my drinking, 
though when I drank, it too turned into a binge, but it was with alcohol instead of food. I learned that I have a deadly addiction. Diets and therapy alone would not work on my food addiction any more than getting dry would keep me sober. The youngest of four, I was the only fat kid in the family for some reason. My two brothers and sisters were skinny. And I don't remember suffering from a food compulsion or obsession until I went on that first diet at 13, which was my first attempt to control my addiction. That sparked a 10-year battle with food in my body that included bouts with anorexia, bulimia, and, of course, massive binging and weight gains and losses. This was an important realization for me, and I'll say it again. It was when I tried to control my addictions that they took control of me. I passed over a line at that point at age 13 that changed my life forever. On my first diet, I lost a lot of weight. This was the start of my anorexic experience. I underate, became skinny, and loved it. I loved feeling dizzy from not eating enough. I loved feeling my pelvic and wrist bones. I came to believe this was the secret to happiness. If I was thin, I'd be okay. I don't remember getting positive attention from adults, peers, or family members until I lost weight. I might have, but I just don't remember it. I only remember that for the first time in my life, I felt like I was popular and accepted. How sad that as a teenager, the only thing I I thought would bring me security, love, and acceptance, which was really all I wanted and certainly all I needed, was being thin. So, of course, my world came crashing in when I binged. I would eat until I was so stuffed I felt sick. I would wait a while and start eating all over again, and this is in the course of an evening. It didn't take me long to gain the weight back, and rapidly. I remember the shame and terror I felt when I would start binging so uncontrollably. And this happened over and over and over again. Binge, starve, repeat. Shame played a big part in my addiction. I wouldn't tell anyone what I was doing with food. If everyone seemed to love me when I was thin, they would certainly be disappointed and reject me if I gained the weight back. This is what my mind told me. So I hid my binging and the hateful feelings I had about myself as best I could. I wouldn't admit when I gained weight because that would be like admitting I'm a failure and I'm letting people down. Yet my weight fluctuated wildly. I am five foot nine and have weighed anywhere from 109 to 175 pounds during my disease days. By the grace of God in this program, I've maintained a healthy weight ranging from 130 to 140 pounds for 36 years. The weight changes are only due to my activity levels and the seasons, not dieting and certainly not binging. As my addiction progressed in my early 20s, I became even more desperate. I worked a minimum, <clears throat> pardon me, a minimum wage job and lived by myself. I had no life plans except to get my weight and food under control. I had no career or family ambitions. I was going to deal with those things once I got food in my body under control. The more I ate, the more I isolated, and the lonelier I got. When I was under eating, I would then start drinking, and that seemed to help keep me out of the food for short periods of time, but I always ended up binging and gaining weight. I was living in Omaha, Nebraska, where I grew up, when OA started running these TV commercials at night right in the middle of my prime binging hours. This planted a seed, but I wasn't ready to see it yet. 
I still thought I could control my eating until one winter when my parents' progressing alcoholism drove me to a program for families of alcoholics. I was extremely depressed and I blamed my parents' drinking. My eating was getting worse. I was gaining weight again, hated my job, had no money, and was taking more extreme measures to eat and then control the eating. I was stealing money and food and isolating even more. I had several embarrassing and unsuccessful attempts at using laxatives to try and get rid of the food I'd binge on. But at that program for families of alcoholics, I learned about the stages of hitting bottom for the first time. And I instantly stopped thinking about the alcoholics in my family because this was describing me, the food. I had experienced all those stages of bottoming out, but it was with the food and dieting. Still, it took me a few months to get more miserable, enough to try our way. So I went to one meeting and didn't like it. Too much God. Everyone was older than me. I think it was about 20, 21 at the time. So I left that and spent another year trying to control things the way I had been for years. And my drinking got worse, by the way. Okay, I finally went back to OA. And at that second first meeting, about a year later, I heard things I couldn't say aloud to myself, let alone anyone else. But I was finally ready to hear it from others. People did the same crazy things with food that I did. And I did it all. Dug it out of the trash can and living alone, I'd hide food in my apartment, you know, for myself, I guess. Um, They had the same negative and shameful thoughts about it, too. So I finally felt like I belonged, and I've been in OA ever since. Although I could no longer deny that I was a compulsive overeater, though, I still wasn't ready to give up the food and work these steps, honestly. After several months in OA, I became distracted with a new job that relocated me to Kansas City, about three hours away. I believed that this geographic change would be my cure. But the night I moved to Kansas City, I had a huge binge and dragged myself into a blackout. I woke up yet at another depth of despair. Somehow I managed to get to an OA meeting in this new city. I did not want to go, but I didn't know where else to turn. Still the binging progressed through that next year. I would get a sponsor, do what she told me to do, but inevitably the compulsion and obsession would return and I would eat. I would then disappear from meetings for a week or two and get a different sponsor and try things her way. Again, the compulsion and obsession returned even stronger than the last time and I would eat. My life continued to go downhill despite this geographic cure. Living on an hourly wage, I often overdrew my bank account and was not afraid to write bad checks if I was desperate enough for food. And I always was, always ran out of money. Thankfully, I didn't have a credit card in those days. I worked in a restaurant and would steal tips off the server's tables to buy food. I called in sick to stay home and binge. And I made a new pledge every day to abstain. But no matter what I did, I always ended up binging. I cried virtually every day and was at the end of my rope. I didn't know what to do, and neither did my latest sponsor. So she suggested I see a professional, which I did. And that therapist gave me the MMPI, the Minnesota Multifasic Personality Inventory. The test is about as long as its name. Um, But the results were spot on for me back then. The findings spelled out how desperate I was, and it just stunned me. I remember this line. It said, She believes in God, but doesn't believe God believes in her. 
that shook me to the core because I believed what the program said, that some kind of faith in a higher power was the answer. But my faith seemed non-existent. What kind of faith did I have if I kept binging? It just wasn't enough. The MMPI recommended in-house treatment, which seemed impossible to me. I should not have been able to go to treatment. It was not as common then as it is today, especially for eating addictions. It would be 30 days, and I didn't know how I could pay my rent if I, was, if I wasn't working. And even if I figured that out, would my employer hold my job for me after 30 days? The treatment facility, by the way, was, uh, that was recommended was for alcoholics, not people with eating disorders. But the solution all fell into place. I was at the end of my lease, so I gave up my apartment and moved my things into a friend's basement, and my boss generously gave me 30 days off with my job assured when I returned. But this meant I would have no money and no place to live at the end of treatment. But I didn't care. I was ready, and I went. Talk about letting go, right? Um, The first night I was in treatment, listening to alcoholics tell drinking stories that sounded like mine, I admitted with great relief that I, too, was an alcoholic. But also on that first night in treatment, another thing happened that should have doomed me in treatment. I ran into a friend of mine from OA. She was also an alcoholic and had relapsed, hence her stay in treatment. It was her last night there. She took me to her room, and in tears she told me that she spent the entire 30 days in treatment binging, blaming the facility for allowing cakes and other binge foods to be served there. At first, I was losing hope. Then I had this awareness that I, too, could spend the next 30 days binging there. Or I could do what the program told me to do and see what happens. This awareness was a gift. It did not come from my lone thinking. Here I had a perfect excuse to relapse, just like my suffering friend had. Or I could choose to follow instructions. Only by the grace of God did I choose the latter. My desperation made that possible. So I made a decision that night that I had not really made in the prior two years in OA, that I would do exactly what the program says to do, no editing, no revising, no excuses, no blaming, no playing the victim card that life was unfair or too hard for me. No more would I spend time thinking about how much harder food is than alcohol. The solution was the same. It just had to be if I was honest and willing to use it. This required dire desperation on my part. This seemed like my last chance to me. And if it didn't work, I was going to find a way to kill myself. That is exactly what I decided. I was not going to return to binging off and on and taking half measures like I'd been doing in OA. My treatment counselor helped me. On my first day with him, I complained that my friend had not gotten any support and cake was not treated like the drug it can be for people like me. My counselor told me he would not follow me around and slap my hands if I put sweets in my mouth, that I would have to make that choice myself, but he would help me with the steps. And don't get me wrong, during that month in treatment, I had physical withdrawal from sugar because I'd binged so heavily, so it was painful. But I needed to hear that. I was still trying to play a victim of the disease, which, had been doing, which I had been doing all along to justify the inevitable binge. But again, at this moment in time, I was ready to hear the truth, that I had to keep the excess food out of my mouth 
and use the steps and tools to recover. Looking at this as my last chance, shut down the rationalizations and excuses for why I was different or that my food addiction was worse than anybody else's. I had read the AA literature profusely in my time in OA, but I didn't honestly apply any of it until I hit bottom. I was an example of self-knowledge avails us nothing. I had the intellectual understanding of what I did and why, and of this solution, but I didn't honestly have the willingness to walk through the discomfort of life and the desire to eat without using food until I finally was spent. The pain of binging became more painful than the pain of staying abstinent and facing life on life's terms. So I stayed abstinent in treatment and worked the first five steps. I met someone there who invited me to stay in her home in Kansas City when I got out of treatment until I could afford my own apartment. Again, I was taken care of. All those reasons that wouldn't work worked out for me. I immediately resumed my OA meetings after treatment and added AA too, of course. In those days in the early 80s, there wasn't anyone abstinent for any period of time in my OA groups. So again, I had plenty of excuses to relapse. Everyone else did. In fact, I found out after a few months of abstinence that my sponsor at the time was actually binging, but hiding it from me. When she finally told me, I actually considered binging. I thought, well, maybe the months of abstinence I've had are on shaky ground if my sponsor isn't abstinent. But Again, by the grace of God, I chose to stay abstinent and instead started helping her. I knew from the day I started in the program that binging once in a while would not work for me. And I later discovered it was because of that phenomenon of craving the big book talks about. I experienced what the doctor's opinion describes as a craving that became paramount to all other interests. Once I started overeating, everything else was secondary. And I hated myself for it not knowing that I was no longer eating just to escape. I was eating to overcome an overwhelming craving beyond my capacity to control it. The only relief the doctor's opinion suggests is entire abstinence, which proved successful and true for me as long as I worked the steps too. I'd gone periods of time not binging, but I would be obsessed with controlling the food in my body rather than letting those go by using faith. That came to me through the steps. So it was like being on a dry drunk. There was no recovery happening at those times. When I hit bottom and followed directions, I experienced a psychic change. I was able to walk through the desire for food until it passed, which it always did. Eventually, I found myself in that position of neutrality the Big Book talks about. And all that was required was to follow a few simple rules. So here's what helped me the most in the beginning of my abstinence and still does to this day. First, admitting my powerlessness in that first step meant I accepted to my innermost self that the desire to eat and the obsession with food in my body would return, but I didn't have to act on it. This required a sanity that was only, I was only able to experience because of desperation. I was not able to see this before. I could not differentiate the compulsion to eat or the obsession with food from the act of binging. Every other time I tried to abstain, I would end up binging because the compulsion returned. I thought, oh, this must not be working because I want to eat so bad. I discovered that this is what I was powerless over, 
when I finally accepted that the compulsion would return no matter what I did, I was no longer under its control because I wasn't fighting it. In my first abstinent weeks, in fact, I didn't trust my abstinence until I went through that, com- that compulsion. It came, and I did, using the tools and keeping the food out of my mouth. The compulsion passed, and I became stronger. I used the ABCs of the big book at these times, that A, I was powerless over the compulsion and the obsession. B, that no human power could relieve me. Gosh, that would give me relief, and to this day it does when I apply it to life. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. I would get on my knees and say aloud, okay, God, I'm seeking you. This is hard, and I can't do it myself. I will keep the food out of my mouth, and I'm going to trust that you will take care of me. Not really believing it, but I did it anyway, because eating never worked. That's another thing I would remember is, gee, every other time I would end up eating, and that never seemed to work. So this time I'm going to try not eating and using the tools and see what would happen. What did I have to lose? Each time the compulsion and obsession returned, and they did, I would do those ABCs, call someone to get out of myself, and get through it until the compulsion and obsession lifted, which they always did. The compulsion returned off and on for the first six years or so of my abstinence. But each time it was shorter periods of time and further in between. Sometimes it would be months in between. Today, I no longer experience it at all or either of those things. But I know they can return with a vengeance if I stop working the program. I have seen the progression of this disease. In addition to acceptance, I had to get honest, not just about my binging, but about my abstinence. I've come to define my abstinence as eating honestly through a reliance on my higher power. In the beginning and now, if I need to make changes to certain foods, I share the specifics of what I eat with a fellow. And I typically eat three meals a day, snacks if needed, and that's where honesty has to come in, and no sugar. I don't strive for perfect abstinence, which for me is another term for diet. I strive for honest abstinence. Now, for me, I do not weigh and measure my food. And I know many fellows do this. And I completely respect and support whatever path a person needs to take to recover from this addiction. But here is my experience only. When I first came to the program, I did weigh and measure and lost weight rapidly, in fact. But I did that instead of relying on my higher higher power and honestly working these steps. So... I remained obsessed with food and my weight. For me, I was using weigh and measuring to shield myself from temptation, as is described in the Working with Others chapter. So again, this is my experience only, and I do not have opinions on what others need to do to abstain, but this experience taught me what would work for me. I know what foods trigger my compulsion, and I happily and joyfully abstain from them today. They are primarily refined sugars. And, of course, I don't eat just randomly or as I feel like it. I try to eat healthy, honest uh, meals um, as my life dictates. My abstinence has changed over the years as I've changed and aged and learned what works for me. Today, I am free to live my life as I am free to live my life and eat as my life requires, not the other way around. And here are some examples. 
I was able to go to college once I became abstinent, but the best way to support myself was to wait tables. And at times, I had long hours because of early classes and late shifts, so I kept really close to people in the program to make sure I was being honest about my eating, and I worked the steps as needed. And I was able to eat those meals, honestly. My career required travel, work hours, and participations, participation in events and activities that would have made weighing and measuring impossible. But it never threatened my abstinence because I had honest reasons for doing my job and I worked to keep spiritually fit. I have always had choices, even when I didn't like them. For instance, sometimes I had to make dinner at a reception, which is not my favorite idea of having a meal, but that's what I had to do in order to live my life, and I was able to do so honestly. When I was pregnant at about 10 years abstinent, I had to change how I ate because of extreme nausea. I was able to eat in ways that I never thought possible, eating crackers when the nausea would get really bad, and did so with complete peace and honesty. When the nausea went away, I had no trouble returning to my regular abstinence. There was no fight or obsession whatsoever. I was in a position of neutrality. And holidays are just another day of the week. That is so beautiful to me to this day. These are just a few examples of how this program has made it possible for me to stop fighting food in the compulsion. As the big book passage promises, I now react sanely and normally. It happens automatically. I have a new attitude. It's been given to me without any effort on my part. I'm not feeding it. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not fighting it. Neither am I avoiding temptation. What made all of this possible was working on my spiritual condition through the steps. This passage appears as the big book talks about step 10. So that's why it took a while, because I had to work through those steps more than once. But at step 10, it says we've entered the world of the spirit. Step 10 is about much more than being freed from fighting my addiction, of course. It's about not fighting life, my day-to-day life. Step 10 helps me accept that I can't control the people, places, and things in my life, and it gives me tools to help me deal with the feelings that come up when life triggers my defects. Best of all, Step 10 points me to seeking the vision of God's will in all my activities. If I'm focusing on God's will, I'm not thinking about controlling things I can't change or reacting to the defects that can be triggered, and they do get triggered. I do not do this all the time. I've made so many mistakes in recovery. Without step 10, I would not have the humility to face my defects and correct my mistakes. This step says when my defects crop up, not if. Step 10 enables me to clean up the inevitable debris that I create because I still try to run things. It takes away any excuse to eat when I act less than wonderful in this world, which I do probably on a daily basis to some extent. I get to face my mistakes and defects honestly with God and certainly the help of others. I've had to learn some basic self-care and things like manners and the dangers of judging and gossip. I continue to learn things like self-restraint and honesty. I still justify and rationalize my motives until it doesn't work and I have to get more honest. In Step 10's practice of self-reflection, has helped me continually uncover the exact nature of these defects. 
always born out of fear. I get to stay abstinent throughout this entire journey. Step 10 also makes it possible for me to help others. If I never acted out of my defects in abstinence, I would be of no use to anyone else. And I love the relief I see on a fellow's face who's confessing a defect when I say I've done something similar and this is how I use the program to deal with it. Because we aren't, we aren't alone anymore. Now, I know it's cliched, but I believe that if this program works for me, it can work for anyone. I mean, look, I was raised in an impoverished, violent, alcoholic home. I'm duly addicted, and I have a track record of relapsing in the program, my last hope. As a therapist once told me, I had everything working against me. I do not look good on paper, I tell people. But when I finally hit bottom... Uh, I still didn't have ideal conditions to recover. There weren't examples in my local groups to show me real recovery was possible. But I had a willingness born out of the gift of desperation. I wanted abstinence through this program more than anything else, and I was willing to feel whatever I had to feel and do whatever the steps asked me to do, however imperfectly. Fellowship and service have been essential resources for me. I've always sponsored people, and many of them have become lifelong friends. I make a point to spend time with people beyond meetings and beyond the telephone, by the way. This has enriched my life beyond measure. Now, I've since watched people in less desperate circumstances than me become willing to put recovery in this program first, and I've, I've had the, the blessing and joy of watching them recover. And sadly, I've seen people with more imminent threats than I had, such as diabetes and heart conditions, not be able to pick up the simple kit of tools the program makes available. I also recently watched my mother die of alcoholism after losing everything and rejecting several chances for help. I don't know why I became willing and others do not. That's because I'm not God. That's the only thing I can do with that question. I am not God. I can't control that and figure it out. I can't give someone the willingness or the desperation, and I sure wish I could. But I do know what worked for me, and today I'm surrounded by many others for whom it has worked as well. Today, I am not willing to take the chance of losing this rare and special gift, thinking, oh, I can just start over again. Though I came close to losing hope, I never gave up. If you are struggling with food, don't give up. Pray for willingness. Keep coming back. And I'm living proof that it works if you work it. So thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Barb, for sharing your profound story of transformation with all of us, so inspiring, and a message of hope and possibility for all of us. Thank you very much. Barb's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. We will now transition to question and answer segment. If you have a question for Barb, please press star 1 to unmute. Lisa B. Lisa B. Anne-Marie M. Anne-Marie M. Anyone else at this time? Rebecca T. Rebecca T. Amy G. Amy G. 
All right, that's a good group to start with. Lisa B., go right ahead. Everybody else, please mute. Good morning. Thank you so much for your service and your share of your wonderful story. Thank you, Leah. I was smiling and just thanking my higher power all the while listening to you because you shared so many things that are uh, I identify in with. Um, and it's so nice to be home here and uh, be recovered and hear the solution and hear your story. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you've seen the progression of the illness and you have long-term abstinence and um, I would really like to hear how you've seen the progression. How has it shown itself in your recovery? Thank you. I pass. Well, thank you very much for the question. Um, I certainly saw the progression in me as I continued to um, uh, practice my addiction just into my early 20s. And I know that I was young, but um, for me the progression was the desperation I felt and the lengths I would go to to eat. Um, And because I, after OA, I got heavier than I'd ever been. I'd also tried... Um, under eating more than I ever had but the scary part there was I was being so dishonest and justifying it by kind of twisting the program Um, so those are some examples but then I've seen it in other people in the program I've worked with Um, the scariest ones are people who had long-term abstinence and then ended up relapsing and left would leave the program permanently and would come back every once in a while at very low times in their lives, but would not be able to stay. And the pain I would see on their faces, the weight gain or the weight loss. I know a young woman who she looks 80 and she's probably 40. Um, uh, And she keeps coming back and then she'll disappear sometimes for years and then come back. So that's the progression I'm talking about. Um, and I know people in other 12-step programs who will pop into OA now and then because their health is being threatened so badly. But they, despite the fact that they have received some real miraculous recovery from their alcohol addiction, they can't give up the food. So that's the kind of progression I'm talking about. And that keeps me abstinent because when I see that and hear that, I experience it inside of me. I think I know I'm capable of that. Thank you, Lisa B., for the question. Anne-Marie M., your turn. Thank you, Leah, and thank you so much for your share. I greatly appreciate it, and I, too, could identify right along. I heard you often say, you know, throughout your story, the the more you tried to control your eating, um, the difficult it it was. And I'm wondering if you find that in um, step six and seven, uh, or maybe just step six, and trying to control your character defects. Um, the reason why I ask is I was taking a 10th step for someone and she was going on about, you know, the dishonesty in her head and in her character defects. So um, once she was finished, I suggested that she look at the opposite of those character defects and that would help her. And she explained to me, which made a lot of sense, is that she cannot fix her character defects by 
by any means, you know, by saying what the opposite is. Um, she has to work step seven and, and humbly ask God to remove them. So I'm wondering if you have experienced that attempting to control your character defects. Thanks. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Um, for me, and I've learned this over the years, and six and seven are probably my favorite steps. I, I'm so inspired by those steps when I read them. I've read them a billion times, and every time I read them, I read something different. But for me with step six, what I have ever so slowly learned was, and this is an oversimplification, I know, but I... It's just like food. I mean, I do not consider food, binging on food, a character defect. To me, that is a deadly addiction. But it says in the literature that um, six and seven is like the first three steps with uh, food, that I, um, once I uh, am honest and I see that defect, I can change my behavior doesn't mean I'm not going to want to gossip. doesn't mean I'm not going to be insecure and judge people. But I can, when I see it, I change my behavior, and then I go to my higher power and ask for help to have it healed. So, again, it's the same differentiation. What a great question. That um, I don't remove the inclination to uh, be insecure or to lie or to gossip or to judge. That I can't remove but I can remove what I do about it. Just like I can't remove the desire to eat or the obsession with my body, that I can't remove, but I can choose how I act. And I also heard once that I'm not responsible for my first thought, I'm responsible for my second thought. So I'll get, <clears throat> pardon me, I'll um, um, see my fear manifest itself in a character defect and that, I will, I'll want to judge myself for having the fear to begin with instead of accepting, oh, I'm being afraid again, but I'm going to act differently. And a great example that I did in my work life near the end of my career, by the way, um, I've just recently semi-retired, is um, out of fear and insecurity, I would want to judge others. And sometimes I'd be manipulative, manipulative and find a really sneaky little way to kind of put somebody down in, a, in such a teeny tiny manipulative way but I couldn't do that anymore I couldn't do that uh, as the years went by the road got narrower and I found out I cannot do that I've got to work on this but I couldn't get rid of the, the desire to do, to do that so I uh, work in, I did a 4 through 9 specifically on this stuff and then I focused on when this crops up I'm going to change how I behave and then ask God for help. And I had to do it over and over again, just like the compulsion to eat. And that worked. And it has given me one of the best gifts I could ask for. You know, as I left my last um, job, that I was able to leave um, with my head up high and so full of gratitude because I got to practice that and not act on it, even though the insecurity would crop up. I hope that makes sense. It does. Thank you so much. Very helpful. Thank you, Anne-Marie M., for the question. Rebecca T., star one to unmute. 
Oh, hi, uh, Rebecca T. Um, grateful, compulsive overeater, Central California. Thank you so much um, for your shares um, and your thoughts. Uh, quick question was, I'm, I was thinking, I'm on uh, the 10th temp, temp step now and a lot of things are coming up and, um, you know, I'm getting to work on my character defects and, and practicing self-restraint. And um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious in terms of um, your recovery and your abstinence, what would you say, um, kind of looking back over your years and experience, would be um, like the biggest tool or, or the or the the best thing that you use to keep yourself, you know, in the strongest um, spiritually fit um, way? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess it always has had to start with willingness because what I've used has changed over the years. There was a period of time where I journaled like crazy all the time because I was going through a really, really hard time. I was going through a divorce. And journaling saved my life, man. Uh, And it was such a great growing period for me. Um, And and then there were times when I uh, would latch on to certain pieces of literature. But one thing I've always done is returned to the big book and the 12 and 12. Um, and uh, I, I, I always say I'm a, I'm a 12-step fundamentalist. I really believe in what that literature says. And I don't care what page it is or what step it is. You point me to it, I'll find something that will help me on whatever day of the week it is. So always being willing and returning to those basics as pure and clean as you can. Um, and certainly, uh, then working with others has always, always helped me so much. And um, this past year, I had three sponsees, all of them at different um, years in the program, some new or some not so new, but they were all working on six and seven at the same time. Boy, did that ever help me. So those are some examples. But always return to those basics. I've had to go to therapy at times. That was a life changer for me. And uh, so, um, but I never gave up on those basics. Always went back to those basics. Thank you, Rebecca T., for the question. Amy G., your turn. Star one to unmute. Good morning. My name is Amy G., recovered compulsive reader from Maryland. Hopefully you can hear me okay. We hear you fine. Great, thanks. So my question is, you know, with long-term recovery, I realize it's one day at a time, but how do you avoid spiritual complacency, if you will, and what would be those warning signs that you would run into? Um, and with that, I'll, I'll mute. Thank you so much. And awesome share. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Um, definitely experienced that. Definitely I experienced that. And um, I would say the first warning sign is ego, manifesting in some form or another where, you know, I'll be bored at a meeting or I'll judge somebody um, thinking, you know, I already know that, you know. Um, 
so but ego in some form or another and um and i always like to start with telling somebody that again is one of my biggest freedoms um when i feel stuck i have to talk to a trusted friend in the program and say hey i'm feeling irritated and judgmental of people in the program um and 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 that that breaks down that ego that tries to um, kind of edge God out. And uh, because this is God's success. This is my higher power's success, not mine. This isn't how I've come to, you know, ma- uh, you know, design the program. This has come from my higher power. So, but I need other help, other people to help me see that. And my ego doesn't want to admit that my ego's, there you know so that's one of the best uh, starts to getting free from it is telling somebody i'm feeling spiritually dry or i'm feeling bored um i feel like i can't really connect with my higher power and um, the other thing that can happen is you know my butt can get kicked through some emotional pain and i don't always have to go to that anymore um but it most definitely comes up and working with others helps so much because I talk to somebody in the program almost every day. And so it is just, it is it is in the fabric of my life. And I lead a very normal life. I've had a, uh, I think, a kind of a very normal career. I have friends outside the program. I have a social life. I do fun things. Um, I'm married to a man who's not in the program. Um, but... Uh, the people in this program and my meetings and my spiritual practice and so forth are part of my daily life and it just, I don't have to stop anything in my life to live it. Um, I get to, um, it's just a part, as much a part of my life as my Christian friends who go to church every Sunday and maybe go to a Bible study and my Jewish friends who go to synagogue on Saturday and um, practice, you know, uh, their uh, paths, and that's uh, how it is for me. And that keeps me safe so that I can't get too far afield because it's so much a part of my life. Thank you, Amy G., for the question. I want to let everybody know that the share ID for today's presentation is 11,920. That's 11920. More questions. Press star one to unmute if you'd like to ask Barb a question. Please give your name and first Dara. letter of your last name. Dara, Dara L. H. Dara L. Terry G. Terry G. Sarah H. Sarah H. Leslie M. E. Leslie M. Marissa E. Marissa E. Rowena K. What's the first name with the last name, letter K? Rowena. Rowena. Thank you. Anyone else? Lisa B. Lisa B. Anyone else? Okay, that's a good group. Everybody, please mute except for Dara L. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for that qualification. It really was 
um, helpful and inspiring, I guess. My question would be, um, I'm someone who's chronically relapsed, and I think it has to do with not sort of fully taking step one, um, you know, to the depths of my being. And I think that sometimes I take it and then I sort of like get that built in forgetter or that rationalization. And so I was just wondering, since you're someone who's had chronic relapse, if you can speak to like what made your capacity to take step one more thoroughly, like what kind of allowed you to do that or what, what was the, the thing that, that you would suggest to someone who struggles with that? Um, I so appreciate what you're saying, and I continue to see that in OA a lot. This is a rare gift, and it is, you know, uh, recovering from this addiction is not for the faint of heart. It is an ass kicker. Okay. Thank you, Dara L., for that question today. Terry G, your turn. Hi, this is Terry G. Terry G. I wondered if you could say some more. I'm one of those people who have long-term sobriety yet struggle with the food. Barb. Star one to unmute. Perhaps Barb got booted off the line. Let's wait a moment. Hello? I'm sorry. I must have hit the mute with my... Okay. Uh, I'm so sorry. That's but I'll, quite I'll right. Answer. You probably didn't hear my, my answer to the previous question, did you, or did you? It ended with, it's the disease is an ass kicker. And then we lost you. Oh. <laughs> I thought that was perfect. <laughs> it really was. Okay. <laughs> it was perfect. Okay, uh, if, you'd, if you'd like to continue uh, what you wanted to say, and then we'll, will. we'll proceed. Okay. I will. It, it really pertains to both questions because um, one thing I see often is that, is that, is that it's minimized and um, that... Uh, you know, I can really relate to the disease, but I don't have as many people in the program to relate to when it comes to the recovery. What happened, one thing that happened for me is I really came to understand that powerlessness once I was abstinent for a period of time working the steps. And I remember it might have been about three months in, and I was having my morning prayer, and I, was, I, did, the, I did my morning prayers every day on my knees in those days. And... I was just doing my, in, when I pray in the morning, I kind of pray those first three steps for starters. And I, and I just had this realization that thought that was, of course I'm powerless. And it's not something you can put into words or rationalize. It is, was literally an experience that I did not have before that. But by walking through many months of not binging and working this the program, and I've got to combine those two because, like I said, I had periods where I didn't binge, but I wasn't recovering because I was like on a dry drunk. But by walking through it and working this with those basics, I came to realize it. I had horrific binges. I was desperate and hysterical sometimes about it, but that wasn't enough to convince me. 
for me, I had to be abstinent to be convinced, not binge to be convinced. And I kept trying to have that binge to end all binges. And um, when I hit my bottom, I stopped looking at why it wouldn't work. And I, my, I only had one question. What do I have to do, period? Not like, well, but, you know, when it rains, I want to eat. Or I'm sick, and I always want to eat when I'm sick. Or I got really upset at work, and I had to eat. Or my family visited, or I visited my family. You know, whatever the circumstance is, um, I had to be willing to walk through those times and feel what my disease did and not put the food in my mouth. I had to get the drug out of my system. And to the um, recovering sober person, you know, I put the food in a jug. And I really do consider food identical to alcohol. And, yeah, you can argue differences. Oh, we have to eat every day. It's irrelevant. What are you going to do about it? So when I put the food in the jug, there is no question what I should do today. If that was a glass of wine, what would you tell somebody? And that's what I used. And I did that when there was no one else recovering at the time. And I'm not saying, I did this. I'm saying my desperation did it. Um, And, of course, I had AA, so I put the food in the jug, and I took everything I heard in AA as a newly sober person, and I used that for my food too, and it worked. So if you want to get well, this will work. You might want to eat. You might have crazy thoughts. You might have the craving. You might get depressed. You might hate yourself. All of those things. But this program will get you through it. And there is always someone there, and especially with the great online resources available now with podcasts and online meetings and everything, there is ample, abundant help out there if you want it. But I had to get honest and say, you know, the first time I got through a horrific desire to eat, got on my knees, did the ABCs and everything. And sure enough, that compulsion passed. And I felt great relief, but it was bittersweet because I had to admit to myself, damn, that was my last excuse to eat, that I had convinced myself, I have to, I have to do it. But just like my AA counselor, you know, I couldn't have somebody walk around and slap my hands every time I wanted to eat. I had to not put it in my mouth and work these steps. And that's what, that is what worked for me. And it is not easy to do. And that's why there aren't many people who really get that kind of freedom because it takes a real willingness. And again, for the recovering alcoholic, I also tell people who come in from AA, you know, if you are an addict like me, you can't afford to use food and then think you've got a spiritual, uh, um, a growing spiritual life because they don't go hand in hand. So, If you're using food, that will inhibit your spiritual recovery as a recovering alcoholic. And I hope that might help too. So, Thank you, Terry G., for the question. Sarah H., star one to unmute. Hi, Barb. Thanks for um, your share this morning. Um, I was wondering if you could speak more, um, two things, on the control and the honesty that you experienced with deciding to not weigh and measure your food, if that was kind of God-directed, or, um, and then also when you mentioned about your abstinence changing, um, 
I didn't quite follow with what you had said about the the crackers and stuff with but what what exactly was that like for you? How did that how did that shift in your life? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Um for me, because my experience early in OA with the weighing and measuring, it wasn't weighing and measuring's fault. It was all that I just wasn't ready to give up the food. But that was so painful for me that I decided that I was, my abstinence at the beginning was three meals a day and no binging and no sugar. Actually, I think I didn't eat flour early on also. But I eventually added flour back in because I kind of needed it um, in working with a sponsor, we decided I needed that to balance out my food, and I was losing weight a little too fast, actually. Um, so um, I decided, you know, I I would have to just work with someone and and talk honestly about what I was eating. I had to be educated about what constituted a real balanced meal because I honestly didn't know because I was a starver or binger. I didn't do diets. I had this one little weird starvation thing that I did. That's all I knew. So I literally did not know what constituted a healthy meal. So I had to learn that stuff. But once I learned that, then I knew I had to I had to use honesty. And then for me, it's been trial and error in in learning. Um, you know, uh, at first I didn't I didn't recognize fullness, so I had to say whatever's on my plate. This, I'm told this is a this is a balanced meal, so I'm going to eat this. And I couldn't go to, for fullness or hunger because I didn't know that. And then I would work it, and I'd have to use the program. I'd have to pray. I'd have to talk to people a lot about my eating. And then over time, my body balanced out, and then I learned. And then as time went on, there were times when I when I realized I had it, I needed to add more because I was too hungry. And there were, there were times when I was eating heavier foods and gaining weight and feeling like crap, so then I would cut back. But every time, to me, the big recovery part for that has been talking with people about my food because, you know, I'd rather tell you my sex life than what I'm putting on my plate, you know. So that that is very mercurial in and of itself is to tell somebody, here's what I've been having for breakfast and lunch and dinner. How does this sound to you? Here are my general guidelines. And over time, it's changed. And as I've gotten older, I have, um, uh, my body has changed. And I have had to um, get healthier um, because if I don't eat um, really healthy foods, I feel like crap. And so, um, but as my body's changed, again, I go to people and talk to them and the people I talk to, I have kind of a network of, you know, four or five friend, close friends in this program, all of whom have long-term recovery, and um, and I'll and I can go to them. I trust them. They really understand nutrition and that kind of thing, and I get their feedback. And when I sponsor someone, I don't tell them how to eat. I help the people I sponsor. Um, get honest and and discover what works for them. And um, it's a wonderful process to watch. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Sarah H., for your question. Leslie M., your turn. Uh, 
Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. This is Leslie M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Long Island, New York. And Barb, thank you so much for your share. It was magnificent. You said something toward the end of your share. I'm not even sure if I can ask the question right, but it, it, was, a, it was a difference between, I think, a craving, a compulsion, and an obsession. And I was just wondering if you could repeat that. Okay. I'm not sure I remember exactly what it was, but to me, I, I separate compulsion and obsession. And uh-huh. I would call craving the compulsion too. I kind of put those together, and that's that's the um, where I had a physical compulsion to eat, and I had a mental obsession. And early on, they came hand in hand. Um, and then as time went on, I was more likely to have an obsession, and the compulsion really wasn't there, unless mm-hmm. I fed the obsession with, by letting myself obsess and worry about it, then the compulsion might kick in. But So that's really what I meant is um, the compulsion to eat, different from hunger, but it's where I would want to eat and it would consume me and take me over and then it would become an obsession. Mm-hmm. And um, does that help or do you, do you need yeah, more? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Leslie M. Marissa E. Good morning. This is Marissa E. Thank you, Barbara, for your share. Um, I just wanted to ask about, you took that test and it said how you believe in God, um, but you don't think God believes in you. And if you took that test today, what you think the result would be and how you would explain that transformation. Thank you. Oh, that's a neat question. Um, I would hope that today the test would show that I most definitely know God believes in me because I have a life now of evidence of it. And when I look at the changes that have come, not just with food, um, in my body, for instance, the, the mental and physical changes I've had in releasing that addiction, that is a big immediate proof to me every day that there's a higher power working in my life. But um, other parts of my life, like just my ability, you know, someplace in the literature, it it, it defines a spiritual experience as being able to See, think, and do that which you could not do before. And that is in my life every day, even if I'm feeling at my worst, if I'm you know, really in a bad mood or tired or feeling hurt feelings or afraid about something, I can always look at evidence in my life every day that I am able to think, see, and do things that I couldn't do before on my own, such as connect with God and not use food and be free from um, the fears that consumed me before. I really felt like I was unsafe. That's all gone. And I have other kind of tangible proof, like going to college for me was 100% a result of the steps because I tried it before uh, for like two semesters, but I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't take it. 
I couldn't take the stress, and I ended up binging both semesters. In fact, I had a student loan, and I ended up withdrawing from the courses, taking the money and using it to binge um, for two semesters. And what, once I had this program working in my life, I was able to go to school and concentrate, and I got straight A's. And it was such, is such a joyful gift. And for me, concrete proof that this program works because I could not have done that without this program because my mind was not manageable at all. I hope that helps. Thank you, Marissa E. Rowena K. Hello, this is Rowena Kay from England. Um, hi, Barbara. Thank you for your share. I really identified with um, the on-off um, abstinence and recovery. But what I want to ask is, what was the difference in your relationship with your higher power, the the steps and fellows? So the difference between those three things um, from when you were in relapse to when you, you got recovered in when you went to um, rehab. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, so grateful there's someone across the pond connecting with us today. That's really neat. Um, the first thing that popped into my mind was humility um, because um, getting abstinent and sober, but was the number one thing in my life when I went into treatment, without exception. And that made everything else fall into place for me. Um, no, There was nothing else more important. I also didn't have much else either. Um, and I realized that, you know, had I been older, married with children, maybe... <laughs> some sort of material things in my life or something, would that have been a pull? No, because I still would have had to put abstinence first. And then everything else fell into place. And also seeing this as my last chance. I mean, I really believed it because I had, I had tried everything else and I was so sick of it. It was my last chance. So I was willing to do it differently than the way I'd done it before because I just couldn't keep going. I mean, to me, there's nothing worse than being in this program. This was my last hope, but I couldn't make it work. And that made me desperate because I really believed everything this program said, but I couldn't make it work for my life. And so hitting that bottom and being desperate got me humble enough to say, okay, how I've been thinking is not working. So I'm going to do it the way they say because the worst that, that, that could happen is they'd be wrong, but it's not going to be any worse than what I've been doing because what I've been doing isn't working. And, you know, kind of a combination of those things, but that humility and willingness and shifting my priorities. And by making abstinence in this program, the most important thing, I'll call them one bundle, in my life gave me a life. I got to go to college. I got to have a career. I got to have a family. I got to have friends. I got to have a social life. I had none of that before. I might have kind of gone, I dated at times and stuff. I went through the motions of social life, but I really did not have a life. Putting this program first took nothing away from my life. 
but only added and made it rich and beautiful. So it's not like, oh, but I can't work this into everything else, when in fact, making this number one filled my life. Thank you very much, Rowena K. Lisa B., your turn. Star one to unmute. Hello, can you hear me? I hear you. Oh, sorry, thank you. Hi, um, thank you so much, Bob, for your story. I really appreciate it and your experience, strength, and hope. Um, my question is, I guess it's sort of I'm a little bit loaded, but um, so uh, do you do you believe, and I guess your experience around it too, that um, <clears throat> like the the anorexia part of this disease, the mental piece especially, if that is, it's a day at a time recovery, or if it's you can be relieved from it. You know, I think it's a, you know one day at a time program, but if there's you know, if you've found you've had to kind of just uh, reassess, you've kind of gone into it mentally a little bit. Um, I just find that when I'm, I'm, I've, I've had a baby and I'm nursing a baby and I've lost some weight because of that, and I find that when I do that, I've my, my weight has gone down. I, that triggers, some seems to trigger like the anorexia part of my disease. And I've in the past mm-hmm. been like, okay, forget it. I'm just going to gain the weight, no big deal. But then, it, then also that triggers me as well. So I don't know how you found recovery around that and if you feel like it's a day-to-time thing or what you, your experience around that is. So thank you very much. I totally relate to what you're saying. And I've always said, you know, for me, if I feel like I'm losing weight, I don't want to eat. If I feel like I'm gaining weight, I want to eat, you know. So I... As an addict, I want to do the exact opposite of what a normal person would want to do. Um, So for me, I put them all in one package, and I don't give my anorexia any more power than I do my binging part. Because, um, And I've sponsored uh, people, anorexic and bulimic, who said to me, well, you don't understand, I can't eat a full lunch. And I have said, yes, I do understand, and yes, you can. You're just going to be uncomfortable. So I've had times like that where my weight has gone down. In fact, after I had my baby, <clears throat> pardon me, I lost weight rapidly, rapidly. I didn't become huge in my pregnancy, you know, and I lost, I only gained 25 pounds in my pregnancy, and I'm a tall woman, um, and I lost 16 pounds the weekend I had my son. It, and it was freaky. Um, and uh, that, but I didn't spend a lot of time on it. I just would divert my thinking. It's almost like a character defect, but it's, you know, anorexia is as much of an addiction as anything. But um, no matter what, it might want, want to trigger it. You just pick up those tools of recovery, period. Um, it's no different than being triggered to eat. Same thing. That, yeah, there are going to be triggers. If I feel like I'm gaining weight, my mind can get wacko. Um, I put on a pair of jeans a couple weeks ago when it was kind of a cool night here in Kansas City. hadn't been cool in ages. And I put on a pair of jeans that I hadn't had since last spring, and they felt tight to me. My mind started to race. It was almost an undercurrent, and I could not control that. But I didn't feed it. I mean that. uh, I don't mean that literally. But... You know, I just, I would look at that with the first step and say, oh, you know, that happens to me sometimes. And I'd give it to God and I would change my thinking. So I do not give anorexia or bulimia any more power than I do the binging. 
It's all the same thing. And the solution is the same. So you might get uncomfortable at times. So what? You still follow the basics of your program. There's no way to get there without going through that. I've never, I've never known anyone who just like snap of a finger, okay, I've never been uncomfortable again with food in my body. I have to be able to live my life and, and experience anything that might get triggered and messed up in my head and get through the, to the other side. So don't buy into it. Like I said, I've been there, man. And um, I, you know, I just had to walk through it. And it was a wonderful experience because I thought, oh, my God, you know, uh, two things I worried about when I first got abstinent in my early 20s. I worried about pregnancy and I worried about menopause. I was afraid those two things because it's hormonal and everything. And I was so taken care of for both of those things um, that, um, again, proof that you can recover if you want to. If you want the solution, doesn't mean you're not going to get triggered. Just like our character defects, doesn't mean I'm not going to get afraid at times or I'm not going to get angry or jealous or insecure, but I don't have to act on it. So don't buy into those things because I have been there. And like you, I lost weight very rapidly, eating very normally. In fact, eating more because I was breastfeeding. Um, My body did what it was going to do. And... Um, you know, when you just have a baby, you're out of whack anyway, you know. So just get close to this program and these basics and do not give it the power. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa B., and thank you to all those who asked questions this morning. And, of course, a heartfelt thank you to you, Barb, for your generous and helpful service this morning with all of us. Thank you for carrying the message of recovery to a vision for you. Thank you. Oh, we're thank gonna, you. Mm-hmm. We're going to close now from page 164. You'll find it in your text in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.